conferences, I have the privilege of announcing a conference to you. It may, there it is up there. Intimate Mystery Marriage. That's quite a title, an intimate marriage, a mystery marriage. And it's a conference about mysteries about marriage, which uh, Dan Allender will explain to you. I don't know if you know who Dan Allender is, but he is a, um, he's probably one of the premier, he is one of the premier counselors and teachers on spiritual health and on uh, marriage in the land. I do know him uh, a little bit, uh, count him a, a light sort of a friend, um, and he's extraordinarily insightful, very entertaining and profound, and so there's an event coming in about four weeks, and I would be there except I'll be out of town that day speaking at a conference of my own. Um, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and Tom Rick said, hey, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, would you come and share in that series? And I said, sure. So let's turn to God's Word. It may be on your screen. It's certainly in your bulletin. And we're going to read the whole of Matthew 5, 3 to 10, the Beatitudes that the Lord gave us, the words of blessing for a character. So listen to God's Word as I read it to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that as we study together this um, part of your word, as we consider the blessed life that you've described for us, that we would have ears to hear everything you're saying to us, that we would um, listen with our minds and with our hearts, and that we would act with our hands and with our tongues. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a little exercise. If you have a piece of paper and a pen in front of you, you can jot or you can make a mental list. It goes like this. Would you please consider some character traits that you wish you had or had more of? Or if you're a self-satisfied sort, uh, traits you wish your spouse had more of. <laughs> or if you're future-looking, Traits you wish your children had, or if you're focused on work, traits you wish your co-workers had. Can you do that? You're all looking at me. You're, nobody's writing anything. Take a minute, write down a trait you wish you had, or your spouse had, or um, co-worker, or child, or friend, maybe your parents, whatever the case may be, um, and see what you write down, and we'll compare it to some other lists. Here's what I'm going to tell you been asking this question off and on for a long time, and lots of people tend to write things like kindness, generosity, uh, maybe toughness, faithfulness, loyalty, energy, sense of humor. Uh, people write all kinds of very plausible things, wise, sensitive, and so on. Uh, the lists that we write down today tend to be quite different from the lists from long ago. Uh, in the ancient world, the virtues people sought the most were courage and wisdom and temperance 
or self-control and justice. And then, of course, we have Christian virtues like love and peace and kindness. But when people write these lists, they almost never write what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In years of asking this question, I've had one person write down, I would like to be, or I'd like the people around to be, me to be more meek, or to mourn better, or to have more poverty of spirit. And I've even asked the question right after I read this passage to them. And they still don't write down mourning or meekness. And of course, uh, there's a reason for that. Most people think, well, who would want to be meek? Who would want to be really good at crying? And yet, and yet Jesus is saying something along those lines to us. Okay, uh, the Beatitudes are a word, not about virtues in general, not about virtues like courage or temperance that you show up, that show up in everyday life, but they're rather a description of the life of a disciple. I'm sure in recent weeks Tom told you that the Sermon on the Mount is for disciples. Jesus has just performed a number of miracles, crowds are gathering to him, and many are gathering for the wrong reasons, for the show, for the miracle, because there's a crowd, because something new is happening, and Jesus looks at the crowds and calls his disciples to himself and teaches them, sitting down, and describes the life of blessedness. Now, probably, as you also know from earlier parts of this series, the word blessed actually normally in that language, the Greek language of the time, means happy. Jesus says, blessed are, the word is makarios, he means happy are. And yet, when we read about this happiness, we know immediately it can't be ordinary happiness because he says, blessed are those who mourn, happy are those who mourn. So it can't be um, you know, the kind of happiness that you get from watching a really good video or a great movie or uh, going to a concert or a play or having a great meal, or sitting around with friends. It has to be something uh, different from that. It has to do with the happiness that's ours even when we're persecuted. So it has to be a happiness connected to our integrity, or our strength of character, wholeness, something like that. Uh, now, having said that, when Jesus says happy are, he's speaking human language. I mean, people want to be happy, right? In fact, people work very hard to be happy sometimes. They work very hard. There are gourmet cookbooks that tell you how to, how to cook pork butt for nine hours till the meat just falls off the bone. So you'll be happy when you eat that pork butt. That's just wonderful. And, and maybe how to get some, some chicken with a reduction sauce is so clear and pure that when you eat the leftovers, four days later, it's still so perfect. And it only takes five hours to make that chicken broth. We seek happiness through food. Now, it's the antithesis. So I'm going to go to the other end of the year. Let's go six months from now to August 2nd, right? August 2nd. About 30 miles southwest of here, you will see people at a place called an amusement park. Can you picture that? At amusement parks, people work very hard to be happy. They stand on searing pavement, 90-degree temperatures, in lines that are 90 minutes long for rides that are 90 seconds long. It's, it takes a lot of work to be amused at an amusement park. <laughs> so we want to be happy. We want to be happy. But Jesus knows that um, happiness, that kind of happiness, is very fragile. It's fleeting. And um, 
If we take pleasure in food, you know, by the time you can afford it, it's probably bad for you. If you take pleasure in beverages, it's probably bad for you again by the time you can enjoy it. Um, if you take pleasure in bodily strength, it erodes. If you take pleasure in beauty, it erodes. I read an interview with a uh, model once. She said something very profound. She said, if I weren't so beautiful, maybe I would have more character. And she said that 30 years ago. And she's probably been working on that insight since those days because she's probably not as beautiful as she was 30 years ago. The point then would be that real happiness, lasting happiness, doesn't come from seizing um, experiences, but from an enduring strength of character. Even if we're only selfish, we should care about our character because it's what lasts, but we should care even more because that's where Jesus starts when he describes the life of a disciple. Now, um, again, even the most dedicated Christian will rarely say something like, I aspire to be meek. I aspire to mourn. We have much more fashionable virtues like uh, toughness and integrity and independence. But if you look at Beatitudes, um, the first three are Beatitudes of neediness. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who know their spiritual poverty, and who mourn over it and who are meek because they mourn over their sin. Now, that's in a very unusual series of, of character traits. And yet we should expect that because this is Jesus and he's talking about the kingdom. And he's not just talking about isolated traits, he's talking about a person. The, the Beatitudes taken together, and people debate whether there are seven or eight of them, it really doesn't matter in the end. But they're really one picture of a disciple. And um, the first thing I want to say to you about that picture is that it's really calling us to be Christ-like. If you look at the Beatitudes, and I'm not going to do every last one, but if you have, is it up there in the screen? It's not there in the screen. Um, look at your bulletin for a second. Look at the scripture for a moment, if you would. And let's just take the second of them. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, Jesus mourned. Jesus mourned over sin in Israel. He mourned over the people of God who were like sheep without a shepherd. He does that just a couple chapters later, chapter 9. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And Jesus says, I am meek. He didn't assert himself. He didn't push himself. He was lowly. He laid a gentle burden on his people. That's Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was baptized so that all righteousness would be fulfilled. He didn't need to be baptized. He did it to fulfill righteousness. So when he says these things, he's saying, be like me. Mourn and be meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness as I do. Or let's take the next one. Blessed are the merciful. And why, if you know your Bibles, why did Jesus touch people and heal them? Over and over it says in the Gospels, because he felt compassion or mercy and therefore acted. So when it says, be merciful, it's saying to you and to me, be like Christ. And when it blesses the persecuted, certainly Jesus was the persecuted person par excellence. So if you're persecuted for your faith, you're with Jesus. Be like me, is what Jesus says. Now, if you're really sharp, you may notice that there's one beatitude that doesn't fit, and that is blessed are the poor in spirit. And the reason is because Jesus is not poor in spirit, and we are. That's the one beatitude he doesn't share with us because he doesn't 
share poverty, he solves poverty of spirit. He isn't with us in poverty of spirit. He, he removes the gap between poverty and richness of spirit that we desire. He's the bridge, not the sharer. So there's no greater thing we can aspire to than to be like the Son of God. I don't know how many of you have children, um, but it's, it's wonderful when you see your children following in your traits that you think are good. Of course, when you see your children having traits that you think are bad, it's because they got it from your beloved. But if they got it from you, you're pleased. I'll never forget the day when at Covenant Seminary, uh, a student of mine was discipling one of my kids in grade school, and she said to me, Dr. Doriani, it's been such a pleasure to disciple your daughter. When I first met her two years ago, she was 10 years old, and she used the word non sequitur correctly. I could tell that she loves words like you. Now, that's not a big deal, but it made this father's heart smile because she's like me in something that I think is good or at least okay. And just think about the pleasure that God takes in you when you have a character like the character of the sun. He's pleased. He shines down his favor, his smile on you, and we should take pleasure for that. And not only take pleasure for that in that, we should hunger for that. We should hunger and thirst for that righteousness. Now, I want to be very clear. When, when this passage, this is what Tom asked me to speak on, says hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's telling us to strive. To hunger and thirst for something is to want it badly. More on that in a, in a little while. Um, but we have to remember the overall scope of the Gospel of Matthew, which, which makes it very clear that any accomplishment we have toward righteousness or godly character comes to us by grace. By grace, God sent his son. By grace, Jesus lived a perfect life and died. And by God's grace and favor, he raised his son and united us to him and sent his spirit so we would be aware of our neediness and our sin and have desires, proper and good desires. So this is one of those passages that is telling us two things simultaneously. We have a gift. It is a gift to even want to be like Jesus. Most people probably don't. It's a gift to have that desire for righteousness, and it's, and it's a matter of our striving. We hunger and thirst. Well, um, I want to walk you through some of these Beatitudes before we get to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is our core, and talk first about poverty of spirit. Now, um, we have a little graph that has been prepared and may just slide up here, and there it is. So this is a, this is a, a picture of the way the Beatitudes hang together. So if we're poor in spirit, that means we know our spiritual... I don't need to stand underneath there, right? You can, you can guess where I'm pointing. So if we're poor in spirit, that means we know our spiritual poverty and neediness. We will then, arrow, mourn over it. We don't just say, I'm poor in spirit, who cares? A disciple is poor in spirit and, and knows that means I'm sinning, I can't stop sinning, and I feel really bad about that. And I mourn in God's presence about that. And if we mourn in God's presence about our sin, we'll also be meek. Meek in biblical terms, is not a personality trait. It's a character trait. It's not being shy or retiring. It's refraining from selfishness and self-assertion. 
And so if we know we're poor in spirit and we mourn over it, we're not going to assert ourselves. Instead, we're going to hunger for something, and that is to be more like God, more like Christ, and to be a more righteous person. And that will lead to all three of these. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will slowly become more merciful, more pure. We will be peacemakers. We'll make peace with the people around us. That's a righteous thing to do. And beyond all that, you can see that poor in spirit leads to mercy. Because you see, if you know your spiritual poverty, you'll be able to empathize with other people and theirs. Right? I need some head nods here. Well, I know Presbyterians don't say amen, but you've got to give me something here. So poor in spirit, if I know my sinfulness and weakness, I will be patient with other people. If I know I can be overbearing or difficult in some way, it makes me more patient with other people who bother me, right? So if you're poor in spirit, you're merciful. And if you mourn over your sin, if you really mourn over your sin, we couldn't get the air to go all the way through, you will, be, you will eventually become pure, you won't just say, well, I'm sorry I sinned and cry about it and do nothing. You'll become pure. And, of course, if you are meek, not asserting yourself, you will make peace, won't you? Because where do most battles come from? Self-assertion. So they all hang together. They're one description and the, of the Christ-like character, and the core of it all is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. But before we get to that core, I want to walk you briefly through what it means to be poor in spirit. This is not a description of personality. It's not saying, uh, blessed are those who are shy and nervous and cowardly. It's saying, blessed are those, whether strong or weak in personality, who have a character that is self-aware of our sinfulness and our poverty at a moral and spiritual level. Now, this is the opposite of the way we do things in our country. Um, to be poor in spirit is contrary to the spirit of our day. In our day, we want people who are bold and tough and self-reliant and independent. So, for example, um, if you watch a little child trying to tie shoelaces, and maybe we'll make it a, a four- or five-year-old boy or girl, and they're on the floor, and you know, their manual dexterity is almost to the point where they can do this, and they've watched mom and dad, and they want to do it, and they come kind of close, but they pull it the wrong way, and, and it slips through, you know, right? And they pull again, and it slips through, and they're slowly getting frustrated. You see a little child's about ready to explode, and you say, honey, I'll do that for you before they you know, burst into tears or something. And the little child looks up at mom or dad and says, no, daddy, I can do it myself. We call, we call the relatives about this. We say, our child is going to do it. He's going to do it himself. What a tough kid. Of course, spiritually speaking, we know we can't do it ourselves. We're sinners incapable of redeeming ourselves. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. We take our poverty to God, and Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. If you know your spiritual poverty, take it to the Lord. Say, Lord, heal me, forgive me. You're an heir of his kingdom. Well, again, the first beatitude leads to the second. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this is the uh, beatitude that almost sounds like a contradiction, right? Happy, blessed, happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who cry. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So we have to know that it doesn't literally mean happiness in tears, or let's say it better, 
Um, there is not joy in all mourning, but in some. The right kind of mourning. So, for example, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians in which he rebuked them for some sin, and he said this about his letter. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, I rebuked you, and I know you felt sorry about that, and I'm sorry that I hurt you, I'm paraphrasing. And then he says, yet now I am happy because your sorrow led you to repentance. Godly sorrow, still quoting, godly sorrow leads to repentance that brings salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So if you cry because the stock market went down, or because you finally got caught for what you've been doing for years, that's not necessarily blessed at all. The, it could be, if it leads to real repentance, real blessed mourning is mourning over sin. And that includes a number of things. It includes mourning over your sin, the sins you committed maybe this week. It also includes mourning over sins in your friends, your loved ones. You see, and it grieves you. You pray for them. It means mourning over sins that pervade society. As you see things going against God's way, it is right to mourn over that as the prophets mourned over sin in Israel. I'm not talking about you know, Fox News screaming at those evil people. That's not mourning. That's being mad. I mean grieving over sin, not delighting in denouncing it. I probably just lost some friends, didn't I? It's okay. We should mourn over indifference to the gospel. Jesus mourned over Israel when Israel wasn't interested in the kingdom he proclaimed. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathered her chicks, but you would not have it. And you won't see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus grieved mourned over sin in Israel. This is not something we all do. And the, the truth of the matter is that a church that's grace-oriented can, can be lazy or indifferent or blind to this. So grace, grace, grace. Everything's covered by God's sin. We're in good shape. I'm going to reach back for a pretty old story. Um, there's a man named Steve Garvey who was an all-star baseball player in the 80s and early 90s, and um, he played for the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Diego Padres, West Coast guy. And on the West Coast, he married a famous TV personality, beautiful newswoman, and they had a couple kids, and they got a divorce. It was very public because, uh, you know, she was Mrs. Beautiful and he was Mr. Beautiful. Um, his, the media called him Mr. Clean. His teammates called him Mr. Phony, and here's why. Uh, when he got the divorce, he was engaged to a second woman who was already carrying his child. Uh, but when the day came for him to marry that woman, he instead married a third woman. And when that hit the news, a fourth woman came forward and said, by the way, I'm also carrying Steve Garvey's child. And uh, he went, for whatever reason, uh, to the media and didn't deny the claims of either of the women who said they were carrying his child at that moment. We might say he acted more like a padre than a dodger. <laughs> and in the interview, he said, and I quote, if the children are mine, I'll live up to my moral obligations which I feel strongly about because I am a Christian. 
The interviewer, this is Hollywood now, the interviewer felt this wasn't quite right and said, you don't seem very embarrassed or ashamed or disturbed by these revelations. And Garvey said, God has a purpose in everything we do. You know, with friends like these, who needs enemies to the Christian faith? He did not know how to mourn. He had laid hold of grace as an idea that kind of made everything okay. David, King David, in the Psalms said things like this. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because your law is not obeyed. That's mourning. Or James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You, I hope you hear the heartfelt desire to lay sin aside. But also he says, wash your hands. That means change your deeds. And purify your heart, which means change your attitude. It's an attitudinal and public visible thing to mourn over sin. And Jesus, of course, says those who mourn will be comforted. And they'll be comforted a couple ways. Uh, the Spirit will enable us to walk away from sin and move toward righteousness as we strive and lay hold of His grace. And we'll also be forgiven for our sins. Well, that leads to the next one, and that is, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So if you know your sin, you mourn over it, you will also be meek. Once again, very quickly, that is not a personality trait. Jesus is not saying Blessed are shy, retiring people who don't know how to defend themselves and sit quietly, suffering indignities or you know, running from the room when someone asks them to speak for themselves or whatever. This is not a personality trait, it's a character trait. Character trait means you can be uh, strong and assertive, you can be a CEO of a large corporation and still be meek because it's not about your personal style, it's about your character. And the meek person is the person who is not selfish, who doesn't assert himself or herself, the person who is not full of selfish ambition. The opposite of meekness is selfish ambition. You can have ambitions, but they shouldn't be selfish ambitions. They should be ambitions for other people. When I was a very young pastor, uh, for reasons I can't quite fathom, a pastor of a very small church in a rebuilding, revitalization phase, and a, a, the CEO of one of the two big bigger companies in our small town, came to our church. And um, he was such a strong personality that when he spoke to me, I literally would put my feet like this and my hands behind my back and lean into him so the force of his personality just wouldn't blow me against the nearest wall. He was so powerful personality, but he was meek. He was meek because when he asserted, he was always asserting for somebody else or for somebody else's cause or needs. He was not selfish. So, what we need to do then is, is um, lay hold of this. I'm spiritually poor. I mourn over my sin. I have no right to assert myself. Just practically speaking, it's very easy to say to God in private, Lord, I'm meek, I'm lowly, I'm worthless, I, I don't deserve your favor. Hard to translate that into um, daily life. You know, you, you can say in your prayer life, 
uh, Lord, I'm a wretched sinner and have no right to ask anything for myself. But it's a little bit harder to say that to your spouse or your friend. Lord, I'm a wretched sinner. I have no right to ask for anything. Or flip it, and if your spouse says, you know, you're a wretched sinner and have no right to assert anything for yourself, you, we're prone to say, well, you know, you're a pretty wretched sinner yourself. So it evens out. So let's get back to our dispute here. Okay, blessed are those who then go through all these and come to a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. If we really know our sin, we're going to be hungry. We're going to have a strong desire for righteousness. Now, that means it's a metaphor. Hunger and thirst for righteousness is a metaphor for strong desire. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness hunger and thirst for God. They cry out for God. Um, Jesus says, for example, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. We yearn for Jesus. In the Psalms, those who cry out to God are satisfied with good things because they, they hunger for God and he gives it, gives it himself to them and gives righteousness to us. This has different forms. This righteousness has different aspects to it. In this passage, the righteousness Jesus is discussing is, first of all, our own personal growth as individuals. We want to become more righteous, more just, merciful, kind people. We hunger for that. Of course, reading the Bible as a whole, we understand that we should also desire what people sometimes call an alien righteousness, that is to say, Christ's righteousness given to us. This is from a long time ago, but let me just describe one person's hunger for righteousness. It was Martin Luther. Martin Luther had an extraordinarily strong sense of his sinfulness and of God's righteousness and his liability to God's wrath. What got him, actually, um, more than anything else, was when he became a, he was a monk to try to get right with God, and did fasting and prayer vigils and so forth. But then he became a priest, and when he was about to offer communion, and of course everybody was a Catholic in those days, so he thought he was going to turn the, the elements into the body and blood of Christ, um, he said, how, how can I have the power to, to hold the majesty of God in my hands? I'm so impure. He tried to get right with God by his obedience. He said this in one place. He said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I. <laughs> he still wasn't sure. So he kept doing things. He kept confessing his sins and, and trying to do good works. And he went on a pilgrimage to Rome by foot at the age of 27, and he went up some sacred stairs on his knees, praying the Lord's Prayer at every step, our Father who art in heaven. And when he got to the top, he said to himself, I wonder if it's so. I wonder if this will make me right with God. When he decided it, it wasn't so, and the only thing that could satisfy him was the righteousness of Christ given to him by faith. So when Jesus says hunger and thirst for righteousness, he means our own actual progress, and he also means the righteousness that he gives us through his death and resurrection at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, of course, we read about that. We could also say, of course, it's not just righteousness in ourselves, but socially we should desire righteousness where we work, in our neighborhood among our friends and our family, wherever we go, in business, education, politics, the arts. 
should yearn for that in our land. We understand that our country is uh, more and more enamored of things like autonomy and authenticity. And whatever I choose for myself, if I'm sincere, it's beyond question. It leads to all kinds of, well, um, problems. We're, I advertised a marriage conference for you. You know why most marriages end these days? The most common, at least. At least what people say. One person says to the other, I'm tired of this. It doesn't feel authentic to me anymore. I don't know why we're together. And as, as if authenticity is the standard of, of truth or integrity or something. It doesn't feel authentic, I'm out of here. Our culture makes it a very plausible way of proceeding. We should grieve over that and long for righteousness in the land and do what we can to be faithful in our marriages and encourage people and all the rest. And we should have a hunger for this. Hunger and thirst for righteousness is a dead metaphor. We don't hear it anymore. I've got a water bottle over there. Maybe some of you saw me sipping it before I stood up. But far be it from me to have to preach when I'm even mildly thirsty. And, you know, it may seem weird, but it's true that I brought a piece of toast and it's in my car. If I'm a little bit hungry because I stayed too long and burned too much energy here with all of you, there's a piece of bread waiting for me. Far be it from me to even be mildly hungry for 20 minutes. We don't even know what hunger and thirst are anymore, or at least not much. A number of years ago, I got caught in a traffic and airport mess. And somehow I went an entire day without any food. Big conference. The last bit of the conference was over, and we're driving back to our dorm where I already knew there was no food. Um, yes, we were staying in a dorm. That was part of the problem. And the, and the food had shut down. And a few other people in the bus with me were in the same position. And we were having these tremendous theological discussions in the bus. And conversations about food were breaking out all over the place, too. And we said to the driver, you know, a lot of us are hungry. We're going by, you know, McDonald's is over here and Burger King and Wendy's. And, be, you know, we would like to stop. And the driver was an Ethiopian and, she, and pretended he didn't understand English. He understood English because he just wanted to get home. And so he said, you know, McDonald's, right over here, please turn in. Oh, I, you know, I couldn't make it. And uh, here's Burger King. Well, you know, that didn't work either. And it's now Wendy's is the only thing between us and starvation, so we thought. And, you know, my, I, I stood next to the driver and threatened to grab the wheel from his hands. Turn into Wendy's. Turn into Wendy's now, or I'll wreck this vehicle. Well, I was hungry, and, and I, um, I want to urge you to remember what hunger and thirst are like and have a hunger for righteousness. We're often content with a nibble or a snack of righteousness, like the snacks we lead at Super Bowl parties today. We're dull, we're dutiful, we're passionless. Can I ask you to do something before we pray? I'm going to ask you to consider where you might begin to feel a hunger for righteousness yourself. I'm going to ask you to take a moment. I'm speaking very slowly now and inviting you to mostly ignore me as I ask you 
is there anything in your life that's not right? Where you know you're not living righteously and you don't really care much, but you know you should care more? Write it down, make a mental note. Pray about it. Maybe it's some desire that's out of control, judgmentalism, anger, some form of selfishness. I don't know. Label it. Write it down. Keep it in your head. Think of it later. And ask, do I care? Am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Do I want to be like Christ? Or am I content to drift along? Yes, we're good, reformed, Bible-believing folk. And we know that our, that sin we're writing down, that weakness, that's forgiven. It is. But it's not enough to be forgiven. We should want to be righteous. And maybe, you know, you're a socially-minded person. Then are you aware? Do you have a passion for what you can do for righteousness in our land? I encourage you to think about that. Pray about it today. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have a right hunger and thirst for you and your kingdom and your righteousness, Lord Jesus, that we would long to be more like you, and not just in the abstract, but in the way that we need it, even this day. I pray that you would speak to these men and women and children one by one, even now. May we desire you and your righteousness, your kingdom, your healing, your peace. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us.